When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is Simon Brew. I'm the editor of Film Stories magazine and a very warm welcome to the Film Stories podcast. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that have stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, it's absolutely everything you need to know about me. Uh, if it's your first time listening to the podcast, well, the, what we try and do here is tell the stories of films. The title does sort of give it away, really. Um, so I look at production stories, development stories, behind-the-scenes stories, release stories, marketing stories. Just I try and dig into the tales that go into making the films we know and love. Just that, those films that we know and love. And I do really like the two films that I've picked for this episode of the podcast. The films I do tend to choose... Um, have more of a mainstream leaning than not they're films I tend to be invested or interested in to some degree I'm not very good at snark for which I make no apologies and to start with in this episode I'm going back to 2004 I'm going to play you a clip from a sequel this clip in fact Mr. Managed Knox Potter what are you doing wandering the corridors at night I'm sleepwalking Extraordinarily like your father you are, Potter. He too was exceedingly arrogant, strutting about the castle. My dad didn't strut, and nor do I. Now, if you don't mind, I would appreciate it if you could lower your wand. And that was a clip from 2004's Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I've not done a Harry Potter film on this podcast before. I don't have an intention to do all of them. But I do think there are one or two interesting turning points in that cinematic franchise. And this was the first of them. So let's do the basics. It's directed by Alfonso Cuaron, uh, based on the novel by J.K. Rowling. Steve Cloves wrote the screenplay. The cast, of course, well, it was Daniel Radcliffe, uh, Emma Watson and Rupert Grint were the key three, but then pretty much everyone else in England was in it. Richard Griffiths, you can find Pam Ferris, there's Gary Oldman, he's in there. The Phelps brothers, Julie Walters, Bonnie Wright, Mark Williams, David Thewlis, Warwick Davies, David Bradley, Michael Gambon, Alan Rickman, Dame Maggie, basically just assume pretty much everyone who could act uh, to, to a standard was in the film but the film was a turning point for the whole Harry Potter saga that the up until that point the ambition had been to make a Harry Potter film every year and for the first two years that had pretty much gone to plan so we'd had Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone which came out in 2001 Sorcerer's Stone in the US and then in 2002 Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets both of them came out at the end of those respective years but by this stage the schedule already was taking 
taking a toll. I mean, don't forget, with the first Harry Potter film, there were some problems over just who was going to direct it because Steven Spielberg was in the running at one point and one of the reasons he apparently elected not to direct it was the, the Warner Brothers producer, David Heyman, they needed a producer who would work with J.K. Rowling and pretty much accept that J.K. Rowling was the author, really, in many senses of the story, not just of the books, but uh, she wanted con- uh, she wanted a degree of control over the films and to ensure that her books were treated properly. And so after various directors were mooted beyond Spielberg, it was Chris Columbus who took the job. Chris Columbus of Home Alone, Mrs Doubtfire, uh, all sorts of family films. He relocated from America to the UK to make them and he was he worked closely with J.K. Rowling uh, to uh, just make sure that the, the films were really accurate and reflective of her books. But the first film, the making of the first film was really hectic. Um, so one of the things they noted was that the effects a lot of the effect shots were done pretty much late in the day which accounts for how the visual look of it that that digitally at least doesn't always quite measure up so by the time they came around to doing chamber of secrets they they'd learnt just to jiggle the schedule slightly just to make it all happen it really is quite remarkable given the scale of both films that they were turned around in such a period of time but it was an exhausting and punishing schedule um and you know notably the second of the harry potter films is is the longest i believe and it was part of the reason for that i think is they just didn't have the time in post-production to really shape that film that three days after philosopher's stone had finished and work was completed they were back on set starting to shoot chamber of secrets chris columbus had got to the point halfway through um the the making of chamber of secrets where he just kind of figured he'd had enough of this that the schedule was such that he wasn't seeing his family for dinner pretty much he gave an interview to the bbc where he said he hadn't seen his kids for supper for two and a half years and he advised the producers he advised david Heyman, he advised warner brothers halfway through the making of chamber of secrets that he was not going to direct the rest of the films the original plan was that columbus would do all seven films as they were at that point um but that plan wasn't really going to work for him and so he effectively put in his notice on it he was persuaded for some degree of continuity to stay on as a producer of the third film but that really was as far as he went in the end that he he wasn't involved in the franchise after that third movie this there were other pressures that were building which ultimately resulted in warner brothers looking towards a mini reboot of the franchise which was wildly successful at this point um and so one of the other pressures in there was on the young cast that warner brothers had cast the three leads uh, daniel radcliffe rupert grin emma watson and it was conscious that it was it was committing to a seven film saga and so as a consequence of that what it needed to do was keep making the films so that the aging of the actors was consistent with the aging of the characters on screen they couldn't afford in their mind to be leaving two three years between the movies because otherwise well anywhere up to like 15 20 years could have passed by the time they completed all the films by which point the, the those core three actors would have significantly in age terms outgrown those roles however there was some degree of pushback because the the parents of at least two of the uh, uh, at least two of the two leads were wanted their kids not not 
unreasonably to have some time at school that for a, a year or two basically the trio were tutored on set and they were what 12 13 14 years old you know that they, they grew up on these film sets but they were tutored on sets and uh, across the first two films and their parents just felt they needed to get out to a school so that was going to delay the production of the third film there was the need to find another director for the third film there was also the fact that the pace of the books um what wasn't quite at that stage keeping uh keeping pace with the speed of the movies that uh I, i think it was the case that the fifth book wasn't complete at the point the third film went into production and there was a danger that the films were going to take over that that rate of publication and rate of release so david Heyman and warner brothers announced that they were relaxing this one year uh between films schedule that they put together and they're relaxing it to 18 months and this announcement came the the announcement came that chris columbus was ducking out in may 2012 so that was six months before chamber of secrets was in cinemas but even with this 18 month rather than 12 month between movies plan that's nine months just nine months before production was going to begin on a very uh, a, a very effects heavy practical heavy and intense blockbuster movie and so they needed to get their skates on um and so but this afforded also an opportunity that the books were the stories in the books were getting darker. I don't think it was a massive secret that J.K. Rowling was building towards uh, a, a quite dark uh, end end chapters to the books, which she'd been teasing really throughout the early throughout the early ones. And the films were going to have to reflect that. Whereas the first two movies had been very fr- family friendly, PG rated films, there was a sense that maybe they just have to evolve a little bit, and they just have to grow get a slightly more grown-up tone to reflect the darker edges that were more and more creeping in so the third book prisoner of azkaban uh, the longest book at that point in the series for instance were the, the dementors the these really quite creepy creepy creations that we see on screen but the dementors were coming in and that straight away was going to put a horror tinge to the film so the search was on for a new director and first to be offered the job was Guillermo del Toro and del Toro would ultimately elect to make Hellboy 2 and he made his decision in part off watching the first two films and he decided at that point he wasn't interested really in the brighter world of the Harry Potter films Um, it wasn't immediately accepted at that point as well should note that the later films were going to go as dark as they arguably did so it was who's next on the director's list well mark forster was in there and forster had come to prominence because he directed the really quite excellent finding neverland but if it was finding neverland that drew him to the attention of warner brothers and david Heyman, it was also finding neverland that firmly put mark forster off making the film that he'd done a film with child actors and he had little desire to repeat the experience so he he would swerve away in fact a few years later he would go completely the other way and he'd direct the james bond film quantum of solace that i've done uh, a previous episode of film stories on that there you go how's that for a quick subtle plug who else m night Shyamalan of the sixth sense unbreakable more recently split and glass he was on the list as well but at that point he had a commitment to making uh his film the village uh which which he duly went and did and so warner brothers ultimately after it, it had struggled really to find find who was going to get the job narrowed the narrowed it down to a short list of three possible candidates 
So one of them was Callie Curry, uh, screenwriter and director. Most recently, she'd done Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood that had been a, a good surprise success for the studio. Kenneth Branagh, who had appeared in the second of the Harry Potter films, um, he was also on the list and he would admit that there were discussions that took place about him directing a Harry Potter movie. But the person who got offered the job was Alfonso Cuaron, um, who did ultimately get it, but not without a slight bump. Now, on the surface, he was uh, a contentious choice that there were a few eyebrows raised because his most recent film at that point was the was the, the foreign language hit Itu Mama Tambia, which is an excellent film, but a very sexual film. And there was uh, eyebrows certainly raised at, at his choice, given that that was his most recent film. However, Warner Brothers also contended that uh, factored in that he'd made A Little Princess, really delightful adaptation of A Little Princess. He'd also done a literary adaptation of Great Expectations a few years before and he was skilled in handling book-to-film translations. He got offered the job then, uh, much to the delight of J.K. Rowling who's a huge Itu Mama Tambian fan, but ultimately originally he wasn't keen on taking it and his inclination was to turn the job down and it was only really after he'd had several discussions with his friend Guillermo del Toro that he said yes that del Toro just advised him this is an opportunity you really should take and it's worth noting that Alfonso Cuaron at this point had not read the books he hadn't seen the earlier films and he had a degree of homework to do um, before he could step on set and start directing the film. But he did ultimately take the job on and thus was confirmed as the, the the second director in the Harry Potter series. And he sat down and had a meeting with the, that core trio, Emma Watson, Rupert Grint Daniel, and Daniel Radcliffe. Um, and it's a widely reported story, this, but it's quite a delightful one, really, because the actors soon warmed to the challenge of working with him because it, at his first meeting with them, he told those three young stars, he asked those three young stars to write an essay about their individual characters and so Radcliffe reportedly turned in a single page um, just brief brief explanation and sketch notes really Emma Watson's her her essay was 11 pages long about the uh, where the character of Hermione was going and what her thoughts on Hermione were Rupert Grint decided he wasn't going to do it though because his argument was the character of Ron just wouldn't do that kind of essay in the first place and that was much to the delight really of the director who realized this going these people all know their character there were challenges um, with some of the, amb- the, the the sheer ambition of the film, really, because one of the things Caron wanted to do and one of the things producer David Heyman wanted to do was to open this world up that uh, as much out of necessity and the breakneck speed they were making the films, the first two movies were very studio-based. They're based in Leavesden. Uh, it's now where you can see the, the excellent World of Harry Potter exhibition just outside of London. Um, but it, very set-driven and very, uh, I mean, very contained. And, I mean, it's quite remarkable, really, just just how good they look, considering they venture very, very rarely outside in those movies. But the plan with film number three was very much to venture outside. Uh, Caron wanted a lot more location work, and at one point the production decamped to Scotland, a very, very rainy Scotland, while production was ongoing. Um, and he also wanted to start to establish on screen a proper layout in people's mind to Hogwarts, that he wanted uh, the Hogwarts School, where, where most of the film is based. 
place. I'm assuming most of you know this. Um, but he he wanted people to become gradually more familiar with the layout of it. That he kind of felt the first two films were a bit weak on the geography of what goes where and what staircases where and what room is outside what. And so they, there was an awful lot of planning in there, really, just to just to get that all that in place. And there were elements of the first two films that were changed for the third as as more and more exterior work was built into the production one of the other things Caron wanted to do you saw this with uh, with one of his subsequent films as well Gravity in particular um, but one of the um, other things that he wanted to do was he wanted to drive as much towards um, the practical effects wherever he could over visual effects that he, he, he wanted physical tangible things in the eye of his camera and it was I think it was Tim Burke who was visual effects supervisor on this film he would go on to be senior visual effects supervisor on the, on the last couple but he worked pretty much right throughout the series there's a really interesting guardian look back piece that that went live just around the time the final harry potter film came out and burke would describe caron as quote an interesting person unquote and then he added quote i'm being a bit cagey here let's just say he's challenging high standards all sorts of things and there were there was the odd story that caron really was pushing his crew um as hard as possible to get the film looking as good as possible and i think that is really reflected in in the end product that ends up on the screen that i think that the tonal the tonal change in that third harry potter film i really think is quite marked and it is a, a lot of it is down to the look um that that Caron manages to put and his team managed to put onto the screen he was wrestling with the fact he and steve cloves were wrestling with the fact that uh, at this point this was the longest potter book and that meant changes needed to be made to the screenplay just to just to fit it all in some things had to be cut out some things had to be changed some things had to be worked around and there was some toing and froing with jk rowling in there one of the creative decisions that she vetoed was the idea of having uh, physically much smaller characters um running around hogwarts and she just said that's not part of this world at all by that i mean tiny characters in terms of their physical stature um then once once all in place and ready to go there was the small matter of filling in some casting uh, gaps that had opened up most tragically of course was um, Richard Harris who played the character of Dumbledore in the first two films and he was uh, he was gravely ill at the point that the second film was in post-production and he didn't want the role of Dumbledore recast and he, he went, uh, David Heyman went to visit him um, as his illness really took hold and and did ask him not to recast the role but sadly matters were really taken out of David Heyman's hands when Harris did indeed pass away and the the need was on to find someone to take on the role of Dumbledore in the movie I think it's pretty well known that Saria McKellen was one of the candidates Richard Harris had had some not very pleasant words about McKellen to say during his lifetime uh, McKellen was at that point committed to doing the Lord of the Rings films anyway so even if a formal offer had come in there's some contention over whether it did or not he wouldn't have taken the Harry Potter role on and in the end it was Michael Gambon who was cast um, as the new Dumbledore he elected as well he was very upfront about the fact that he wasn't going to do a Richard Harris impression um, that he was basically going to play the character um, he, his own way which he just felt that was fairer to Harris that was fairer to the, the, the character as a whole 
elsewhere in the casting well david thewlis um took on the role of professor lupin in the movie and one of the um i, I mean he'd had form with the franchise beforehand in that thewlis had in fact auditioned for the first film and been unsuccessful in that audition that he'd taken on uh, he he'd aimed to get the role of Professor Quirrell that had gone elsewhere and in fact the role was taken by a friend of his Ian Hart. When Thewlis thus was offered the role of Professor Lupin in the movie it was it was Hart's counsel that he sought on this one and, and he, just, he just asked him about the role and it was Hart that just assured him that it was one of the best parts in the book um, and as a consequence as one of many reasons that David Thewlis signed up for the uh, signed up to appear in it and would appear in subsequent films as well in the series. Gary Oldman was also uh, was also on board in the role of Sirius Black. He had actually been taking a break from screen acting for for a year or so, and he took on the role. I mean, he he basically implied at the time he took on the role because he needed the work. He was he was actively looking for work at this point, and this particular role came up, and he he took it and was and was glad that he did. With the various bits of casting in place then, there was the small matter of actually filming the, the movie. And even though there was the 18-month cycle that the Harry Potter films were moving to, although they wouldn't keep to that ongoing, at one point there was a two-year gap between films. Uh, Pre-production work was taking place from October of 2002. So that that, that was still some a, a good number of weeks before the second of the Harry Potter films was in cinemas. The filming wouldn't start until February 2003 and would take most of 2003 to get the movie in the can. It were it wrapped up in November 2003 followed by 6 months of post-production work ahead of the movie's uh, the, the movie's release at the end of May 2004. When the film came out, it was the most critically applauded of the Harry Potter movies as well. So much so, in fact, that even before it was released, Alfonso Cuaron was invited back to make Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, which would have been the fourth, well, which was the fourth in the Harry Potter series. But again, it would have been on that 18 month schedule and he was still in post-production on Prisoner of Azkaban at that point. And that punishing schedule was not one he particularly wanted to repeat. As a consequence, he turned down the chance to make another Harry Potter film. And it wouldn't actually be until David Yates came along uh, two films later that David Heyman would find a director who w wanted to commit to making multiple Harry, Harry Potter films one after the other. In fact, David Yates has now moved on to do the Fantastic Beasts movies as well. The critical response was strong. The audience response was good as well, although there was some uh, a little bit of parental concern that things had turned really quite scary. I think the Dementor sequences in the movie really are quite chilling, uh, particularly for a young audience, but never mind a young audience. What about uh, an adult one? What was interesting, though, was that this marked change had brought about with it a drop in box office. And of the eight Harry Potter films that there ultimately were, it's Prisoner of Azkaban is the lowest grossing of the lot of them. That um, in America it would go on to make 249 million at the box office, a little way that's about 12 million behind Chamber of Secrets, and the it, worldwide again it was 80 million shy of Chamber of Secrets, which which was in seventh place, taking 796 million dollars uh, worldwide. And 
one of the things that would happen, I mean, it would be 18 months until Goblet of Fire was on the screen, uh, directed by Mike Newell, and that the longer gap would refuel the box office, really, because by that point, every subsequent film, pretty much, was making more money than the last. Um, but it was, in, in commercial terms at least, Prisoner of Azkaban, surprisingly, uh, given that it's generally the best regarded of the films, was the, the lowest financial performer. Nonetheless, um, I do think it, it's it's one of the, it's the film in the series that generates the most response. I found that I know there's some people who don't warm to it, uh, who who think it really is re- really a, a little bit too scary. Um, nonetheless, I do think it's the most individual of the Harry Potter films, and I I do think on on a technical level, um, it, it's the best of them. I really think it's some piece of work, and it goes to show that under the cloak of a PG rating, under the cloak of a family movie, you really can get away with some quite ambitious storytelling and some really quite uh, dramatic visuals as well. Um, It was the last of the Harry Potter films too, I should note that John Williams would write a score for um, and I think his score for this one is a real delight. But there you go, Um, that is the third of the Harry Potter films. I will come back and do one more in a future podcast but for now I'm happy to have the argument that Prisoner of Azkaban is the best of the lot of them. And with that, I come to the halfway point of the latest Film Stories podcast. So if I can do just a couple of plugs, I have um, I, I have a live tour that cont- that is ongoing. Uh, my, my one-man movie nerd tour is next in Northampton. So this podcast is being released in September 2019. And I'm in Northampton on Sunday the 29th of September. You can find details of that on the Film Stories website, filmstories.co.uk. Just click on the live events tab at the top there. You'll, always, you'll also find details of when i'm in belfast in october and i've got news on hopefully london and liverpool coming shortly also if you go to that aforementioned website filmstories.co.uk you can order film stories magazine and film stories junior magazine these are two mainstream magazines uh, produced independently in the uk and your support of them is hugely appreciated likewise your support of this podcast is hugely appreciated it makes a huge difference if you subscribe and leave me nice reviews and thank you to everyone who's been doing that that's all the plugs let's get on with another film let's get on with the second of the two films i'm talking about in this episode of film stories i'm going back to the start of the 1990s i'm going back to uh, one of christian slater's best movies here's a clip i'll pick the story up the other side of this everybody knows that the days are loaded everybody rolls with their fingers crossed Think about it. Everything's polluted. The environment, the government, the schools, you name it. We were on uh, 92 FM tonight. It feels like a nice, clean little band. No one else is using it. Price is right. Are you listening to this? Yeah, of course I'm listening. There's nothing to do anymore. And all the great themes have been used up, turned into theme parks. So I don't really find it exactly cheerful to be living in a totally, like, exhausted decade where there's nothing to look forward to and no one to look up to. That then was A Small Taste of 1990's Pump Up the Volume, uh, written and directed by Alan Moyle and headlined by Christian Slater and Samantha Mathis. And it's uh, it, it, was a, it was a teen film released in 1990 that was not a massive success on first release, but certainly built up an audience. And 
I remember I, I encountered it personally by accident. I grew up in Birmingham and the the multiplex we had in the middle of Birmingham, the Odeon on New Street, had recently upgraded for uh, and added two extra screens. Um, so it was able to slightly broaden the number of films that it could show. And so I discovered Pump Up the Volume by just heading along in the autumn of 1990 to find that one of the new screens that it was on was basically the size of a telly, uh, it appeared, in your in your living room. That notwithstanding, I, I was really impressed with the film. But then it's kind of a film that still re- flies under so many people's radar. I mean, th- this was the era where Christian Slater was billed as the big upcoming movie star, the heir to Jack Nicholson, really. He was appearing in films such as, well, he'd done Heathers, of course. But around the same time, he was doing films such as Cuffs, Mobsters, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. He even turned up in Star Trek VI um, in, a brief, in a brief cameo. The genesis of this particular film, though, and it's my favourite Christian Slater movie of that era, was with Alan Moyle, the writer and director. And he put together a script called Radio Death, which gives you a rough idea of what the original take of Pump Up the Volume was like. And he he explained all this in an interview with Vice a few years ago. They did a 25-year look back at the film because there's not an awful lot of material around from the the point of the movie's release. It was a very low-key release. But Moyle did talk about the genesis of the story for him was the story about a suicidal young man who was on his own pirate radio station um, who was basically taunting his listeners by saying, you know, just tune in, tonight might be the night that I do it. And he put this screenplay together. And Moyle had a, a, you know, quite a pedigree in screenwriting. So he knew his way around a script. And he showed the script to the person who would come to produce the film, a man called Sandy Stern. And this would be Stern's first movie as producer. He would, in fact, go on to produce uh, Being John Malkovich and Saved, amongst others. But this, this was his starting point. And Stern liked the script and wanted to get involved. But he did have some advice for Moyle. And he suggested just to make it less dark, to make it a bit more more approachable um and and really uh, moyle took that advice to heart and he did rewrite the script and he did tone it down although he still leaves some very dark elements within the story the central character of mark is is no longer on the verge of suicide but he's clearly a troubled young man and he's clearly a lonely young man we meet him in a new town where he's got very few friends and we see the contrast of his radio station persona against him going around your standard american high school so he did base the film which would become known as a pump up the volume he did base his story on this idea of this introverted depressed lonely teenager but the thing is Moyle at this point well he'd not directed a film in around a decade and that was because there there had been a problem on his last movie and this was always going to be it was always going to come up at some point were he to try and get radio deathstroke pump up the volume made into a film with sandy stern on board certainly that was the direction it was heading so Moyle had directed a film in 1980 called Times Square. It's a pretty little, it's a little known movie, but it stars Tim Curry. And the story goes that the, the then young director uh, lost, uh, well, lost his control in the editing room. That he said he was fired from the film before production of the movie was complete because he refused to add more songs to that particular film. That's the story as it goes. What apparently what the producers of Times Square were looking to do was to put a double album out of the music, and thus they wanting more music in the movie Moyle uh, stood firm Moyle lost his job off the back of it and that left him disillusioned with directing with only one or two movies under his belt at that point 
And so he reverted back to writing, uh, to screenwriting, and, and pretty much abandoned any plan to direct in the future. But... Uh, pump up the volume the, the, the script that you put together and a, and a bit of the passage of time and some persuasion really was what turned him round a little bit on that on that aversion to directing another film so by this point that the script was in place the central character mark he, he penned basically his character with a, a lenny bruce edge to him and he, he does cite lenny bruce as an influence on the character and it came to the attention of a Canadian production company by the name of SC Entertainment. And SC Entertainment read more script and they liked what they saw. So they, they bought the screenplay and put the movie into development. It was never going to be a massively expensive movie, that much was clear. But nonetheless, they saw the potential in it and, and SC managed to bring in finance via New Line Cinema. Now, this is New Line Cinema before it was bought up by Warner Brothers, but as a consequence, New Line had various distribution agreements with different companies around the world, which which did mean that uh, Pump Up the Volume was likely to get out to a global audience, and it's one of the reasons why it made it to the UK in the end. But with New Line putting money into the movie and with SC Entertainment wanting to press ahead with, a, with it as a project on its own slate, it came to the question of who is going to direct the film. And the obvious candidate to direct it was Alan Moyle himself. Uh, even though Moyle was reticent to direct, nonetheless, New Line Cinema liked the idea of, of him directing his screenplay. I suspect it was reasonably economic to do it that way um, as well. Uh, but nonetheless, Moyle, of course, had, had at this point, he had directed movies. So it was logical at some point that a conversation would take place with him. Moyle still had the scars from that time of making uh, Times Square, though, and as a consequence, he put certain conditions in place were he to press ahead and direct the film. And one of them, uh, I mean, the, the, the core one, really, was that he would only direct the film, and he had this clause written into his contract, he would only direct the movie if they could find the right person to play the central character of Mark. And Moyle's reasoning on that was what the last thing he wanted to do was to end up spending eight nine uh, weeks shooting a movie when he couldn't stand or, or, or had problems with the person that he was working with uh, not massively unreasonable but that was addressed at contractual level um, in Moy in Moyle's own contract now the film was due to go into production in November. The well, it was due to start filming at the end of November 1989. Uh, it was due to film in and around the California area in the US. Although the the, the look and feel of it was very much they were going for a small town America uh, kind of uh, kind kind of look and feel to the movie. But there was the question of who is going to take on this absolutely core lead role in the film. And Moyle was really pushing for someone to ha with a little bit of edge to them to, to take that role on. And so an offer went out to John Cusack. And Cusack at this point, well, he was he was deemed you know quite quite an edgy actor he'd come off a run of teen films and as a consequence that really was what led to him turning the film down that he did read the script he did have conversations with alan moyle um but in the end cusack would reject it by just basically saying this film came to me a year or two 
too late. He wasn't going to take on another teen role. And as a consequence, Pump Up the Volume was not going to be a project for him. Uh, separately, Christian Slater was around 20 years time, uh, twenty years old at the time that the script heading it, headed in his direction. And he was an inevitable consideration for the role of Mark. The, he just he just done a film called Gleaming the Cube, which didn't particularly, uh, and Moyle wasn't particularly impressed with. But the the film obviously that had brought Christian Slater to attention, and the film obviously that had brought him a fan base and made him a, a, a strong candidate to take on the role of Mark was Heather's. And uh, even though he didn't, uh, Christian Slater was not regarded as having quite the level of edge of John Cusack at this particular time. There was a feeling that he appealed to uh, he appealed to the film's target teen audience a little better that he was a, a more attractive actor really i mean being blunt about it um, and that would help with the films with the film's ultimate box office appeal so the offer did go out in the end to christian slater and slater agreed to do the movie at a point in his life where he was struggling he he had well reported problems i'll touch on one or two of them because they they did impact how how little bits of the film panned out but I want to touch on the role of Nora in the film because I, I think Samantha, Samantha Mathis, who plays the role of Nora, is really terrific in Pump Up the Volume, and she's one of the she's an actor who's just not talked about much at all and really deserves to be. I mean, granted, she went and did the Super Mario Brothers movie, which didn't work out well. But how many other actors have gone on to do a film that didn't work out well and and still been offered the opportunity elsewhere? And I really think Samantha Mathis in Pump Up the Volume is really, really, really strong. That said, she nearly didn't land the role of Nora. In fact, it was one of the people who was actively um, pursuing it was Drew Barrymore. She was really interested. And this came out in a, in an interview with the AV Club, which involved uh, producer Sandy Stern. And he said that the part of Nora was being sought after by lots of young actors in Hollywood. Samantha Mathis, though, was at a disadvantage because at the, while the casting process was going, the, the, the casting process was underway. She was actually out of the country in Greece, and it was on the very last day of casting she said to have walked through the door. But the problem was she pretty much just got off the plane from Greece at that stage, so she was sent away for a day or two, um, and then told to come back. And she was given a little bit of a dispensation, and she duly landed the role of Nora in the film. Slater, um, really, I mean, he's he again, he's strong too in this movie, and he played a lot of the role on instinct rather than huge amounts of rehearsal. That Alan Moyle and Christian Slater would go through the lines every morning, but it wouldn't all be done the night before, it would just be done on the morning, so that Slater could be a bit more instinctive with his choices. Slater was pretty passive with the selection of the film's music as well, he didn't have a massive influence on there. There's some all sorts of uh, great music on the soundtrack for which the film is highly renowned and Cliff Martinez is one of his earliest film credits as well but Slater at this point was um, he was having battles that he um, during production of the movie his driving licence was suspended um, when he was prosecuted again for driving under the influence it wasn't the first time and and from a practical point of view uh, uh, in terms of the film that led to Moyle having to do a little bit of a rewrite of the script because obviously the character Mark all of a sudden couldn't drive and so I, I, I assume by the fact that a rewrite took place that he was supposed to be doing some of the driving in there but th that was clearly not a possibility 
City. In the backdrop of it all, Slater was battling um, with, with drink. He was getting on the wrong side of the police. But also, he did commit himself to this role. And one of the reasons it said that he's so authentic and he so lands uh, the role of Mark in Pump Up the Volume is that he was able to channel quite a lot of the difficulties he was having with his own life into this particular role. That said, one of the things that the character of Mark has to do in the film an awful lot is smoke. Um, and as a consequence of that, Slater on screen also had to smoke an awful lot to the point where that was making him ill. And the story goes that several times during production of the film, he was quite ill as a consequence of all the cigarettes he was having to smoke um, just to bring, bring the character to life on screen. When it came to that music soundtrack, it is worth touching on that because one of the things I noted at the time, and music isn't an area, a massive area of expertise for me, but I, I always love film soundtracks and still do. And so I went and bought the soundtrack CD for this one. And there's a song on there, uh, there's a song in the film by Leonard Cohen, Everybody Knows. But the version on the CD is not the version you get in the film. And I was always curious as to why that was. And as it turns out, there's a story in there and it's a story of, a director clashing with a studio so new line cinema at this time was headed up by a man called bob shea and bob shea and alan moyle had a disagreement over which version of the song everybody knows to use in the movie that moyle was adamant he wanted the leonard cohen version of it but also new line were looking to target this film towards teens and bob shea felt that Cohen's Cohen's take on the song was quite downbeat and he wanted something that would appeal more to the teen audience which is why Concrete Blonde came in to do another version of the song. Now it's the Concrete Blonde version that you get on the soundtrack CD and the plan was that it was their version that was going to make it into the film but Moyle was insistent that he wanted that Leonard Cohen version um, and it was only at the very last minute that New Line Cinema ultimately signed off on that decision and allowed him to have it that um, but because that decision came very late in the day it was the case therefore that you you did get one song on the CD and you got one song in the movie the film, though, wrapped up its production, um, a fairly contained production. There was no massive uh, massive surprises or problems that, that I could certainly dig up in researching this particular podcast. Um, but And so it was ready for release at the end of August in 1991. In fact, it would land in the US on the 22nd of August and it would open to really quite positive reviews on the whole what it wouldn't open to was a massive box office that it debuted on the 22nd of august 1990 and in the u.s it just scraped north of about 10 million dollars um in, in its initial box office run in fact it's only box office run what this was a different era for cinema though and so in my case i didn't get to see the film in a cinema until one year later and that was because pump up the volume in the pre-dvd in the pre-streaming era was gradually 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 rolled out across the world as different distributors picked up the rights to screen the film and so even though the movie came out in august 1990 in the us if you go to its release dates elsewhere i mean they followed 
disappeared by some distance. It didn't make it to Ireland for another, what, 16 months. It would be released in Portugal over 18 months later. And I, I'm grateful to IMDb for telling me that uh, it, made, it finally made it to Hungary uh, two and a half years later as a video premiere. But it did get a small release in the UK. It did get small release, uh, which, if memory serves, came through Columbia Tricell. I certainly remember it was their name on the video, though, unless my brain is playing tricks on me. And what happened with Pump Up the Volume is, again, when it came to the UK, it got it got good reviews, and it just got this small, small, small following, which I think has endured, even if the film hasn't really had a great deal of love on its uh, assorted disc releases. But on the, on the flip side of that, it has had had disc releases and also it has endured i mean there, there was a few years ago a spate of 25 years articles i've quoted one or two um from uh, in this particular podcast also i'd argue it was pretty much ahead of its time that you could almost imagine this film being set today but based around podcasting rather than a pirate radio station and there was actually talk of it becoming a stage musical uh, a few years ago uh, and making it a little bit more contemporary but it's Christy Slater, who's made an awful lot of films over uh, over the course of his career, who also more recently declared that this was one of the, the, the favourite films of all of his that he's made. And I have to say, I'm pretty much on Christian Slater's side with uh, on this one. And one of the reasons I wanted to cover it in this podcast is I don't actually think that many people still have heard of Pump Up the Volume. But I do think it's a really interesting, really well-made teen movie that they deliberately tried to do something a little bit harder-edged with no disrespect to the man that than what John Hughes had been doing in the 80s. I think they really succeeded with it. So one or two little bumps in the movie, but genuinely I think it's a really powerful, strong um, and very watchable film that I like an awful lot, which was talking about issues such as depression and loneliness in the midst of a teen movie in a really compelling way. If you've not had the pleasure of the film, I, I I don't think I've spoiled any of the major plot developments in this particular podcast. I do urge you to seek it out. In terms of... Uh, what Alan Moyle did next well he wouldn't be away from directing for that much longer this time um, because he would go on to do Empire Records which landed in the mid 90s which was expected to be a much bigger success and ultimately even though that one has endured as well it wasn't the box office success that it, it, it had been anticipated it would be that though is a story for another time and that brings me to the end of this latest episode of Film Stories. Um, if you'd like to uh, find out what else I'm up to, you can find me on Twitter at Simon Brew. You can find the entire Film Stories project and find out all about magazines and podcasts and live tours and all sorts of stuff at Film Stories Pod on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook as well at facebook.com slash filmstoriesonline. And we have a host of video-only Film Stories as well, exclusive to our YouTube channel that you'll find at youtube.com slash filmstories. And I think that pretty much brings us to the end. I've got nothing else to plug. And so I'm going to get to work on penning what will be the well, the next podcast, which will be the 75th Film Stories, My Life. Um, until I'm back with you with that one, you all take care. Thanks, as always, for listening. Thanks for your support and the very best to you all. Bye-bye.